Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 50, part 2, Making Interesting Characters, recorded live on October 16th of 2014, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, Brandon, and you. Hey listeners, Grant here. This is part 2 of our 50th episode, which we recorded live to celebrate, well, 50 episodes. If this is your first time listening to Saving the Game, back up an episode and listen from that, or you are going to be confused. Also, if you're a new listener, welcome. We're really glad to have you. Thanks for continuing to listen to us over these past two and a half years. I keep saying things like, this show would be nothing without our listeners, but I keep saying those things for a reason. You drive us to keep going. And when we record, it's because we're having a deep conversation with you, not just between ourselves. So here's to 50 more, and then some. Enjoy the show. All right, we have a couple of questions that have plus threes on here, so should we hit those? Yeah, I want to start with Jacob. Okay. What is the most spiritually challenging campaign or character you've done, and how do you deal with it? Example, I'm doing a space opera, and my fiancé has to reconcile her beliefs of salvation with the existence of alien worlds. I find it a great exercise. You guys go ahead, because, yeah. Oh, all right. I don't, I think the most challenging spiritual character I've ever had to play was Tin Man, which is my cleric of the Wizard of Oz that I played in a homebrew game, which actually inspired my Y2112 setting. Everyone who's listened to the show has heard me talk about Y2112, and I think I've mentioned on there that I built that world simply so that I could play Tin Man in it at, at one episode. But he basically was a very interesting, conflicted character who was kind of really, really nuts. And the thing I had to deal with is he he basically built this whole faith up. That was a lie. I knew it was a lie. But in the Pathfinder D&D world we were playing, it didn't matter. Still, his faith gave him power. But since he was crazy and he was basically building a faith off of a children's storybook that had a couple pages ripped out, mainly the section that said, you know, the wizard wasn't actually real, like, just <laughs> torn completely out. He didn't know what to do. He just was like, all right, well, I'm completely fine with this. I I love this. This is, this is absolutely awesome. And what ended up happening is I knew we were going to come to a point where it was going to fall apart for him. Because in one of the houses, we found an actual intact copy of of uh, The Wizard of Oz. And some of the players hid it from my character because they didn't want him to go through this thing. And then someone eventually gave it to him and the campaign didn't last much further for us to figure out what was going to happen from there. But it was just, it was the most challenging character because I had to deal with all these crises of faith and this really broken, damaged character who was holding on to this this belief that was the only thing that was keeping him going and it was going to blow up in his face. Uh, so I've been, I've been thinking and I actually have two answers. The first one is the obvious one from that Ravenloft campaign that I've referenced a few times because I went through and kind of used that to process some stuff that I'd been going through at the time. I think I did a lot of that processing somewhat unconsciously, but it still happened. The other one is probably going to shock you, and 
it's my character in the Shadowrun game. Because for the first time, I've been playing that kind of consciously thinking about a lot of the stuff that we talk about here on STG. And it's kind of in my head like, what does this say about me that I'm having the character do this? What kind of a message am I sending to the rest of my player group? How is this going to affect my perspective on things? How is this going to sound to other people when we talk about this on the air? How does how does this reflect my values or lack thereof? Obviously, it's not cutting into my fun at all, but it has been good to kind of try and think about that stuff some more. Okay, Challenging might not be the best word there, but involved, perhaps? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you've definitely been paying more attention to it. And as the GM of that particular game, it's interesting that I have not done a lot of that, but I think that's because we're running it in a pre-existing setting. Yeah. In Shadowrun. Because I can just kind of go, oh, no, that's that's how the, the world is. That's how Shadowrun is. Yeah. I can hide behind, oh, no, the, the whole setting is like this. This is what characters would do in this setting, and I don't have to give it a lot of thought. In the inspector's game, I'm having to give it much more thought because I'm kind of inventing that out of my own head. And so it's, ooh, what does it say about me that I'm thinking about this? Do I want to really hit on this? Uh, is this going to be a problem for anybody? Where do I take it from here? And it's a real lightweight game that you guys have a lot of input on by design, but I'm still paying it much more attention in that way than the Shadowrun And game. to go back to the Shadowrun game a little bit, one thing that I've noticed that I don't know if you're doing consciously or unconsciously, but the stuff that we're dealing with in the world has been getting steadily darker from the first mission. Yeah, yeah it has. And I'll tell you, that's unconscious. So I know it's unconscious. Conscious or not, the fact that that has been happening has been kind of making me really try and grasp where the edges of Frost's morality kind of are defined. Mm -hmm. Like the thing with the street gang out in um, Puyella. Some of the stuff that we did in there was a little more ruthless than what we normally do, and I yeah. really was kind of like, ooh, this may inform some things later. Yeah, and I'll tell you, one of the things I have been trying to do, and I haven't made the conscious connection, but one of the things I've been trying to do with this game is address the kind of eternal question of shadow running and really all crime fiction which is how do you get out yeah everybody kind of started in the shadow run campaign as well we've been at it for a while but we've only been doing these kind of lightweight things and it's kind of can we dig ourselves so deep into this criminal underworld that we somehow come out the other side because my wife's character wants to get out of the business i think your character wants to get out of the business. I don't know about the other character, but, you know, how do you do that? One last job. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's really interesting about that particular game and that particular setting is we're ostensibly the bad guys, right? You know, the Shadowrunners are professional criminals and stuff. Oh, it's so morally gray. You're, you're the but, least bad guys. Come on. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at. It's like our little group of... Shadowrunners is in a lot of ways a lot more honorable, a lot more benevolent, a lot more decent than the authorities. They've done a lot of kind of petty acts of kindness that got them nothing and in some cases actually cost them stuff just because it was the right thing to do and or they felt bad for somebody and or they just felt like it. And what do you do with that? Because like the, the whole setting itself is really kind of harsh and brutal and there aren't a lot of safety nets there's a lot not a lot of mercy the corporations just look at you know people as human resources and stuff like that and 
it, it's the it's the Robin Hood problem, right? When the authorities are are evil, it is. <laughs> where does that put the outlaws? Yeah, this is kind of the point that I wanted to, to drive at. Is like you're supposed to be, of course, the criminals, but everything's terrible. I got into Shadowrun. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading it. I, I got into it because of Save Against Fear, where I played Shadowrun and realized I really, really liked this. Good. You and I will have to uh, geek out about the Shadowrun setting for a while. Okay, um, just just to, to put this on record, Brandon has accepted something double mumbo-jumbo. Everybody give him, like, no end of the business about this. Like, constantly, for years. That's right. Oh, I... I I, I I I reject that. All right. I have made my yeah, decree. Yeah, we yeah. can move All on. Right. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. The thing is, it's it's one thing that says is no matter what you do, you pay. I do like the whole idea of the trying to get out because that's that is a common theme that I've read in this things is everyone wants to get out or just kick the can down the road because that's that's usually the two ways is, is do you have hope you want to get out if you if you don't have hope then you're just gonna stay in there and just kick the can down the road because i mean the only other way to do is oh are you going to be a wage slave at one of the corps like that's a great way to get to have a shadow runner come in and totally ruin your day and then you'll be out on the streets yeah. like <laughs> unless it's our group in which they will in which case they will do their level best to make sure your day is not ruined <laughs> well yes but you guys that's kind of the the one thing that sets you guys apart yeah. and of course brandon how many noir crime dramas are all about one last job before you get out and go straight right or the you know i'm retired or the guy who's gone straight he's gone to prison right you know oh no no i'm out of the business right i mean it's a it's a common trope my answer to jacob's question by the way is most spiritually ca- uh, challenging campaign or character you've done and how to deal with it is the other campaign I'm kind of planning in my head, which is the Rogue Trader campaign, because that is set in the Warhammer 40k universe, and it's dark and ugly and horrible. And everybody believes in a god emperor who is a supremely powerful psychic who tries to hold together the entire Imperium that stretches across most of the galaxy, and it's a big, ugly, terrible, gritty, grimdark mess. What do you mean? It seems like it's sunshine and rainbows. Well, yes. Except all of those things are made of acid and bile and bullets. The Imperium of Man is Stalinist Russia meets the Spanish Inquisition. It's not a fun place. I don't know. It sounds like a yes. wonderful place to live. A wonderful place. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, Jacob, if your fiance wants to reconcile her belief with uh, salvation, with the existence of alien worlds, I'm going to do what I always do and recommend that you read C.S. Lewis. It's either mere Christianity or miracles. I can't quite recall he does actually talk a bit about salvation and alien races, and his answer is essentially, eh, we'll see when we get there. Reading some of C.S. Lewis's fiction, the uh, Space Trilogy, might help with that, too. Yes, actually, the Space Trilogy is a very interesting way to approach it. Maybe not suitable for a campaign, but really neat and well worth reading. Okay, um, I want to jump... I, Jack's got another question, but I want to answer a question from Mike Perna who, of course, is on Game Store Profits, Roads Ministries, etc., a guy who we've had on the show before as well. And I want to answer his question mostly just because we haven't answered one of his yet. I talk a lot about the Dwarf Bard in our Pathfinder game. I know. I've seen all your posts and re- uh, listened to some of those episodes, Mike. And they're all awesome. Keep it up. When I saw a class guide for the system, under Dwarf it said, Don't. Just don't ever play a Dwarf Bard. How often do you guys play suboptimal class-slash-race combinations, and does it help or hurt? Um, to generalize this a little bit more, um, suboptimal combinations of game 
features and crunchy game choices. Um, I am all for it, and I think it's fun. Some of that is because I used to be a terrible power gamer and would read those guides and live and die by them. And so I've kind of had this reaction the other way that is basically, uh, I want to get away as far away from this as possible and never do anything like this and be as iconoclastic as I can possibly be. Tropes are a trope for a reason, and I think that's okay. But at the same time, there's a lot of fun playing those suboptimal combinations. And suboptimal is only suboptimal when you're looking at this one particular thing. You've got a dwarf bard. Okay, is he quite as charismatic? Are his songs and spells quite as powerful as others? No. Can the others find their way around in the Underdark? Probably not. So, <laughs> trade-offs. Yeah, like, that's that's sort of the way I would take it, is it all depends on the idea. I mean, I do, for some way, like, a, okay, well, if I'm going to play a bard, I kind of want to play something that's charisma-powered up. But, like, that's, that's where my, like, power gaming tends to slow down. Like I, I've met, I have people who I game with who are a whole lot more well versed in power gaming and what you have to do to make this character strong and all that stuff. And I, I'm just like, look, we, you don't need to always do this, you know, break it down to the geometry and make sure that, well, this is the best spell and this is the best thing and this is that because that can't be fun. If you want to play a uh, a character who your interesting concept is, I wield two weapons, and that's really what I want to do. And I want to be a fi- I want to be a fighter who wields two weapons. Yeah. Okay, fine. Like here, here's, that's great. Here's my question: Is your entire game going to be? I do the same thing over and over again, and if I ever fail, then the game stops until I succeed. Because I've played in those campaigns where where it was we have obstacles, we will do the same thing repeatedly, and once we roll enough of the magic number, we get to go forward and have more plot. And that's really all the mechanics were. So if, you know, your game is, if you do, if you are only doing barred things and you need to do your barred things well, because when you don't do your barred things well, the story doesn't go forward. No, there's no reason to play anything but the most min-maxed bard. If you're doing things that are dwarf things and bard things and people things, and where are we? I don't even know. Space has 17 dimensions, and I can see all of them, and it's very strange. What do I do? (laughs) Well, okay, sometimes being a dwarf bard is bad. Sometimes being a dwarf bard is good. Sometimes being a dwarf is bad or good. A bard, bad or good. Sometimes having two feet is, you know, inconsequential. Who knows? But if the campaign is interesting and you have agency in it, Optimal stops really being the right term, and it's, hey, I'm interesting and multifaceted, not I'm doing the same thing over and over, and I should do it better so that I don't feel that this evening is a waste. Go play, I don't know, poker instead. You'll get the same result out of it and, well, I don't know, earn more chips. Poker is probably a terrible thing to recommend. Go play Hearthstone. Go back to playing Hearthstone. Don't go back to do playing Do the same thing over and over again. Don't go back to playing do, Hearthstone. Go do the same thing over and over again. Go play your Hunter, and then you'll you'll get the same enjoyment out of it because you've done the same thing over and over and won more than you've lost. Uh, don't go playing Hearthstone. That's my take on it. And if you're wondering why I've been so quiet on this one, I always play humans, which are always at least somewhat optimal. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> I have played half fey, strongheart halflings with like six different classes and prestige classes because I was a tremendous power gamer. <sighs> All right, I have been there. I played an archangel once, but I think that's really the only time I've played a non-human character. Fair well, I played a basically orc paladin in the short-lived Peter game. Yeah. yeah, and you know what? It was interesting because he was a paladin and because he was an orc, not because he was a weaker paladin. Also, Jack Birkenstock says, power to the iconoclast. So, correct. Huzzah. <laughs> uh, speaking of Jack... How do you feel about the current trend in role-playing games to help guide people towards inter- and intra-character conflict? Where do you see it going? I think Uh, it's wonderful, and I can't (laughs) wait to see what the Bodana group does with it. Nudge, nudge. Yeah, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Finish your book, Jack. (laughs) I'm loving it because I play Monster Hearts. And when I'm getting ready to play Monster Hearts, I'm, I'm realizing that I don't have to plan as much. I mean, if nothing hits me, we're in trouble. But even if nothing hits me, I right. can usually probably fake a little bit until I get an idea. Because it's all about, what is this character doing that's uh, upsetting this other character? Third character, you tell me. And now all three of those people are interested in that scene. Yeah. Because two of them are participating, one is dictating what's going to happen, and the fourth person is probably like, ooh, I just got done with my thing, let's see what <laughs> happens with your thing. That leads on to more interesting character conflict, and right. and I like it. I mean, I always will have a, a a deep-seated, you know, part in my heart where I want it to be about us versus the outside. I mean, I, I recently tried to do a game where it's like, okay, this is going to be all about uh, inter-party conflict, and my party basically said, we don't want this, we want to be heroes still. And I'm like, all right, and we, we redesigned the game. <laughs> Buy-in is the magic word, I think, yeah. right? You got to have buy-in. And I am fine with the design trend going that way as long as there are also games that don't have that because I think some people thrive with... Given the choice, I will not play a game that has a ton of intra-party conflict. It's just not really my style. I'm there to have fun with my friends, not argue with them. But there are some people who have fun arguing with friends so you know to give a slightly more serious answer i have some fun with them in moderation con games for instance i have played uh, in a wicked age at a convention and actually shannon's annual the trouble with rose game features a some inter-party conflict because it's in a very light-hearted setting it's not at all upsetting when right. it happens. And, you know, I love Fiasco, and it's all about that. But again, it's buy-in right up front. I know it's going to be this. Well, and it's short, too, right? I mean, it's not something that goes yeah. on for ages. Oh, I, I could not do a sustained, like, vampire LARP kind of thing where you're all scheming against each other. I just couldn't yeah, I'd do find it. that I'd find that uncomfortably stressful. Peter, what you're saying about it being a con game really works. I, when I went to Fear the Con and when I went to Save Against Fear... I had games where I was like, okay, well, I, I really don't care about this character. In the first game I played in Fear the Con, Don't Rest Your Head, and I went into that game thinking my character's probably going to die. And I was a little disappointed that my character didn't die. I tried to ride a huge bomb down the shaft of death, but they're like, no, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, but I want to. But that would be so cool. Yeah, like it would be so cool yeah. that the last thing you see is my character on top of the bomb as it explodes. Oh, if my character is not dead at the end of a fiasco game, I am not happy. I am happy if my character is alive at the end of a fiasco game, because the first fiasco game I played, which is 
one of the three games I've played now since Save Against Fear was awesome. But yeah, and that was all about interparty conflict. I was I was trying to get one of the other players dead before the twist. And it was my character's job to set up his murder. Right. In a All Flesh Must Be Eaten game, I tried to basically murder another two player characters because we were playing a military unit and I right. was more concerned about getting out. And it was just all this frustration. Yeah. And, and I nearly shot them in the face. Yeah. I only didn't because I failed the role. <laughs> but yeah, I, I am all for it. Sure. And obviously, Jack, as executive director of the Badana Group, which we will link again in the show notes, and you should all go check out if you haven't read up on them already, because they're awesome. Obviously, the stuff he's doing with, you know, using RPGs as a therapy tool, maybe it's really good for you. I think picking a game like that for the right group that can handle it would be awesome for the kind of stuff that Jack is doing. Also, apparently, he's finishing a chapter as uh, we're doing this, so good job, Jack. Keep it up. All right. Yes. Yes. Well done, Jack. For the kind of stuff where the players can handle it i think it's awesome if it's just going to cause trauma and people again if if somebody's designing a game to specifically push boundaries and break through lines and veils kind of whether the players want to or not i think that's a problem if it's hey this is going to be fun and we're all going into it and we can we know it's safe even though it's all interparty conflict and dealing with inner character issues awesome have at um okay um, some other i did want to mention so uh to call this out jacob apparently has indeed read c.s lewis and he knows the specific quote all uh, uh i have all of the previous least stated books so he's on top of it Good man yeah well done um all right another one from nathan here is killing off a character because they aren't interesting a good storytelling choice in rpgs um, no, uh, not necessarily a, killing off, but writing a, out of the story, at least temporarily, I think often is. Yeah, um, I am okay with doing that. Uh, my question then is, is killing them off going to get you any storytelling good? I, I think also you can't, um, you can't be like in the GM's chair and say your character is insufficiently interesting and therefore dead. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of a um, an inappropriate thing to do to your players. Well, it very much crosses that that boundary between GM control over the story and player agency. Talk to the player and say your character is terribly boring. and We got to fix this, but fix it. Don't be like put it down because it wasn't interesting enough. Go make another well, one. Well, yeah. see, the only way you can I would successfully say in doing that is if you're actually kicking the person out of the group. Because if it's like, your character is boring, we don't want to play with you, get out. Like, which is the worst way to handle it ever. Ever. <laughs> it's it's a terrible way to handle it. I almost That's not a thing that you <laughs> no. should do, yeah. Don't do that. Talk to the person and be like, listen, fix this. Having said that, I have asked the GM to kill off a character because I was bored with them, and I was hoping that their death would generate some activity on the... Re- part of the other players and um that didn't happen because the gm killed my character in a very boring way i have had the exact same experience only not only did the gm kill my character in a very boring way he did it in a very passive aggressive way that indicated that he was displeased at having me not continue to play the same character yeah uh whereas mine died and was never heard from or mentioned again because he was boring 
Uh, Nathan, by the way, says, well, it might do some storytelling yes. good. So he's definitely of the opinion that this is something that can be done. And, and I, I agree. I totally agree with that. It depends on the story and how, the way you kill it off. Because you guys have basically just said that there were a couple times in the stories where, oh, the character was not killed off properly and it didn't add anything to the game, blah, blah, blah. So in that case, I would say that it probably would have been better if that character just faded into the background. In the case of you, Peter, where you were like, oh, I'm he's a, he was obviously upset about you changing your characters. Well, that's kind of a problem with the GM. And I mean, I, as the GM, have been really, really upset that a character is like, I want to change my character up and and all that stuff. But the thing is, I've had to replace characters before in a lot of games. In fact, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this, we basically had a character die in the last Dresden Files game we ran. It was less that a character died, actually, and more that uh, he took up a coin of the Denarians. Yeah, you've, I think you mentioned that in the Monsters episode, actually. That, well, that was really, really whoa, okay, did not expect that coming. But, like, it was a logical progression for the character. Now, if he just said, oh, no, I'm going to do this, and it ruined my plot, I would might kind of be upset, and I might express that being upset with a subpar, well, you just go off and die then. Right. Like, yeah. Uh And I think for NPCs, which is Nathan's follow-up here, if an NPC is not interesting, killing them off won't do any storytelling good because nobody will care. That's the, I think that's the simple answer. Yeah. Writing them out of the story in some other way is probably better because it just saves you having to dwell on them. Or making them interesting. Yeah. Oh, terrible. A character died. Who? Him. All right. Okay. That's what you're going to get. They've got to be interesting before their death is meaningful or their absence is meaningful in some way. Or something about their death has to make them interesting. Right. Like you you if you have a fairly boring character but they, you know, they're the first they're patient 0 from like the invading alien parasites or something and they turn into like this weird, you know, yeah. alien dominated walking, you know, yeah. at that point they're a plot device, right? You know, huh, the mysterious corpse in the street that gets you involved into a murder mystery. You don't know anything about them. Their death is interesting, but really that is not a character at that point. That's an object that you'll start to investigate the history of. And, or when Bob the Baker just all of a sudden grabs the sword off the wall and starts holding the enemies away as you guys get out and you see him fall. Well, that was just an interesting death to a boring character. Right. And is that a plot device where, well, my players need to make it out of here uh, or the story falls apart? Well, then it kind of rings hollow. If you've talked to Bob, though, and he's your friend, well, now he's, that death is meaningful. So I think the two are pretty closely interlinked. Uh, let's do move on, though. Okay. Um, but good yeah. question, Nathan. I, I, it's a good question. Another one from Mike. How do you guys balance between playing the sorts of characters you like to play and falling into a trope or cliche? Poorly. <laughs> well, okay. I've said before, I don't mind tropes. Tropes exist for a reason. I try and twist it in some way, uh, like a dwarf bard or a really dumb brute who's got a, you know the the thing that makes him powerful is a very intelligent magic hammer that only he can hear so he's got the voice of wisdom in his head and he's too stupid to figure it out uh that was newton my favorite dumb brute character i have no problem taking the trope taking the cliche and twisting it into something i find interesting and i don't mind that happening 
during play. It's okay to say, again, for this uh, rogue trader Warhammer 40k game I'm playing, I am playing a priest of the ecclesiarchy and flamethrowers and heretics all around. But then something neat will develop during play and interaction with the rest of the characters and the world, and he'll become more interesting than that. I think that's fine. My answer to this is... I always play what I want to play. Right. And if it happens to be a trope, who cares? And if it isn't, who cares? And, right? and what I usually play is the face of the party, because I like playing characters that are socially up there, that are talking, that are using words to solve the problem. Uh, even if it puts me in danger. There there have been games where I've played the Bard, where, the, where we saw, oh, those are intelligent creatures in the next room. All right, so instead of fighting them, I'm going to step in first. I'm going to announce myself, and I'm going to greet them in their native tongue. And if they... And all of a sudden, you're playing basic D&D, where the whole point was to not get killed in fights and find treasure. Yeah. If they roar and attack and jump me, you guys are through the door in five seconds. All right? If not, I will get us what I can. Yeah. It, it was, and I, I love doing it. So I always play something that has a high charisma where I put points in bluff or diplomacy so I can do that. The hardest point is when I'm playing a barbarian, which I don't do that in, or a fighter, and which is why I, I, I tend not to play those. But the, if I had to play something, I probably won't just play a fighter unless I somehow make that fighter a courtly fighter who knows how to talk to people because that's what I enjoy. Yeah. And so I... I love being yeah. a face. So I think the answer here is have fun. Okay, and I'm going to do a little exercise mm-hmm. here. Grant, what kind of player characters do I make? You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, it's it's everyday heroes with a good knowledge of the criminal justice system, a sense <laughs> of responsibility to society, and typically a bit older than everyone else, and technically skilled in something and usually some covert skills yes yeah. i mean your pest control guy in the inspector's game used to be a spy i mean come on <laughs> yes poor ozzy the world's most put upon former polish spy working in <laughs> working in paranormal pest control working yes. in the south doing paranormal pest control none of his spy skills are at all useful and he is so sad yep <laughs> all right anyway but yes that, that's that's who you play yeah and it's a it's a mold that I probably should try and break out of a little bit more, but I have so much fun doing that. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. Oh, trust me. When we run the Rogue Trader game, you'll have to break out of it one way or another. It'll yeah. be hilarious. Well, actually, I'm thinking the next time we right. do traditional fantasy, I'm going to try a wizard. But at any rate. Yeah. Well, at some point, we'll have to, I'm sure, yeah. do that. Uh, let's move on. Jack was making a point about uh, Mirror of Us, Hero with a Thousand Faces, characters as allegory and moral lessons, but I think that was in response to something a while back, so I don't... I'm sure it was an awesome point, Jack, and I'm sorry we missed it. Um, Another one from him, though. Are there ever any effects of a character that you restrict in any of your sessions, and why? Is there a point where you stop playing? Yes, and... uh, I'm actually kind of a a stickler for mechanics, even if those mechanics are pretty yes-and mechanics. You hide it well. (laughs) I, I try, but I mean, at some point you have to actually roll the dice and succeed. Right. You know, in order to get anything done. But I mean, I've never I've never felt like we've been bouncing off the system in your games. Well, no, because I hate that. And I've been scarred by that. Right. But I do try and and I try and come up with 
interesting results for failures that aren't. And the plot doesn't go forward until you roll a success. Get that magic number, please. Now, that's not interesting. But yeah, Or, and you're dead. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, well, like, it's the, it's the problem that I had with Dresden Files game, one of the last sessions thing happened. We had a character who was doing something, and he failed the roll. And so I went to him, and I'm like, you have two choices. You can completely, totally fail and just not get this bonus thing that we're having. Or I'll let you succeed and get the bonus thing you're happening, but something bad is going to happen. And he's like, he asked if everyone else could try first to try to help him first. Everyone tried, everyone failed. And he's like, okay, I I choose the succeed, but bad thing happened. And they got ambushed. Right. Success with consequences is usually much more fun than, no, you failed. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but to get to Jack's point, I think obviously at some point there are lines and veils that you have to pay attention to. But by and large, if a character can do something within the system, I'm cool with it. Maybe that's just my power gaming roots where I'm helping design characters that do 1.6 billion D6 damage in a round and silly nonsense like that. But And that's really not an exaggeration, which is the horrifying thing. Yeah, I walked, I walked these two guys through the whole thing. Uh, Chuck is hilariously fun. Uh, I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> Tremendous amount of math, but hilariously fun. Anyway, and yes, that was D&D 3.5. I actually am probably opposite. I'm probably one of the least permissive GMs. Uh, I, When someone comes up to me with an idea, my initial reaction is no, mainly because of an invisible horse. Uh, which I think I've told about on the uh, on the podcast before. We had a character who played a saint. No, this is the one gaming story that you haven't told on the mic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I concur. <laughs> all right, all right. So it was in my Inquisition game. We had a guy who who uh, was a power gamer, and he was playing from the Book of Exalted Deeds because hey, we were playing members of a church. Why not use the Book of Exalted Deeds? Uh, oh. Because it was badly written and 3-0. Anyway. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. He pushed for it because he wanted to be a saint. And I'm like, okay, fine. Well, you have to be a saint of something. Well, I'm a saint of this. All right, fine. Whatever. Because like, I I'll us- I usually say no, but I usually cave. But what ended up happening is this this guy, he had, okay, well, as this, I want to have a mount. And my mount is going to be a pegasus. Okay, your mount is a pegasus. Fine. We, we already had other characters who had the ability to fly and do things. So I'm like, okay, having a flying horse... That just means we have more flying party members. Okay, I'm, I'm cool with that. Uh, but then, when he started doing things, the horse seemed a little bit too awesome. Like, he was at something, and then he's like, oh my, okay, my horse, my horse casts greater invisibility, Pegasus casts greater invisibility on us. I'm like, what? Like, it's like, yeah, it's in, the, it's in the monster manual stats, and he pointed to it at the book, and I was just like, all right, fine, fine, it happens. It wasn't until later in that game that we discovered that what he was pointing at was the entry to Phantom Fungus that just happened to have the picture of the Pegasus above it. So yeah, I, I tend to, because of that, say, no, no, I don't want to do anything. It's, it's going to unbalance the game. I don't want to have to deal with this, this stuff. Uh, so right. he had a Phantom so, Fungus Pegasus. Which actually, yes. okay, you know, creepy fungal ghost Pegasus, <laughs> I would totally bring into a game. Right, just saying. Yeah, I was like, that would be awesome. Actually, yeah, it, it, what it eldritch was. horror do you ha- are you writing? I mean, come <laughs> on. Yeah, and how has it not eaten you yet? <laughs> Jack is clarifying his question. By the way, he's asking more about uh, personalities that you object to in the game, um, uh, things that affect your game, like uh, a quirk that they play. Uh, oh, you know, this I, I'm playing a murderer or that sort of thing. 
uh, not so much mechanical. For me personally, unless it happens to do with something that's going to um, uh, violate someone's lines and veils, no. For example, in the, one of the Monster Hearts games I'm playing, we have a character who wanted to play wholly made out of cloth um, uh, skin, uh, which we are calling the Enchanted, which derives from the book Ella Enchanted which is the story of Cinderella basically told in a different way, which the girl has a curse on her where any time, any order that is given to her, she has to follow. And this is a character that this person wants to play out. But she's uncomfortable in uh, being ordered to do certain things romantically. Sure. Um, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's... There's a big obvious, you know, yeah. uh, line to cross there she she doesn't want to order to be doing anything physically romantically because that's just not there it's so, a little rapey let's be blunt yeah that's you will automatically succeed in ignoring all of those things and we've we have that as a as as up there because i am i'm not about to violate her lines by this character that she wants to play so as someone says i'm not interested in someone playing dexter because that kind of creeps me out like, then I'm good with that. I'm like, okay, then then no one's going to play the psycho murderer who has a code of ethics. That's why he's working with you. For the longest time, did not allow people to play evil of any alignment until, of course, I played an evil character and then loosened up on that. Because I thought, no, it's just terrible and I want you to be heroes. So you have to be of the, you know, good alliance to fall the evil I'm taking your character away. I haven't had too much trouble with this. This goes back to... Me having an unusually idyllic gaming history, it hasn't been perfect, obviously. I've given examples of where it hasn't been, but a lot of this really kind of egregious outlier stuff I have not run up against. That said, I really am not terribly interested in running a game with characters that are despicable. Doesn't really sound fun to me. Uh, little bits of, you know, kind of dark streaks and stuff, fine. You know, there's a, there's a character in the GURPS game that... Seems to have died to scheduling conflicts and the fact that Shadowrun is more fun, which now, unfortunately, Shadowrun is suffering from the scheduling conflicts, and I'm really sad. But we're we're going to get it back, I promise. Yeah, we, we will. It might not be until after the first of the year, but we will get it back. This is, this is still Savage Shadowrun, right? <laughs> yeah. This is still the Savage yeah. game, yeah. Right, okay. Because if you were actually playing Shadowrun, I would have to find you and beat you. Until no, the, you the, the, uh, the well, no, because the mechanics... Uh, Savage Shadow Run game is really good, but yeah, yeah. you're already in 27 games, anyway. so you're, you're good. <laughs> you're you're fine. Anyway, but yeah. I guess I've said all I need to. That's fine. I really don't have an interest in as a GM playing for or you know running a game for characters that are gonna just be nasty and cruel and stuff in my world. Yeah, and for me, it's basically is this character designed to just let me do whatever I want and kind of ruin the game. Like, you know, oh, I'm playing a chaotic, neutral thief with no morals and a objectivist outlook on life. No, that's, that's not going to fly because that's not an interesting character. If you have made an interesting character and you're playing to it, I'm not too worried about yeah, it. You can play a chaotic, neutral thief and have them be interesting. See Jack Sparrow. Yeah, actually, Jack Sparrow, because he's got, you know, he's playing all sides against each other, but he's got a goal in mind that is good-ish. Yeah, that's, that works fine. This is going to sound kind of silly. Linden, one of the follower characters you get in Diablo 3, totally a chaotic neutral thief. I mean, quite literally a chaotic neutral thief, except his brother is a town guard and his brother is in prison. 
because Lyndon showed up at a heist, was stealing. His brother showed up just a little too late to catch him, and the rest of the guards thought his brother was in on it and helping him out, so they threw him in jail. Ugh. And so Lyndon is traveling the world, trying to figure out how to deal with this and maybe raise money to get him out. And also his brother married the woman he loved, so how does he deal with this? He's supporting the family by stealing from other random people. Interesting character. I'm down with it. That's cool. Let's resolve that story during play, yeah. right? Uh, but that's a lot different from... Hi, I'm a boring halfling thief who steals everything and uh, just says, I'm playing my character when you call me on yeah. it. Totally different. I, I think that yeah. gets into the whole Kender argument that it, was had. It does. And I'm I'm cool with Kender, again, if they're interesting. If the player's being a jerk, it's a player issue. It's not a character issue. Uh, we are over an hour and a half, so Brandon, you're going to have fun. Yes, I am. Um, I'm, I'm good. we we got a couple but, questions left. I think we can hit them. We, we do, and these are all fun short questions, so let's knock these out. And these are all from Nathan, so Nathan, thanks. Yeah. What do you think of the Dungeons & Dragons episodes on Community? Uh, I haven't watched them. Neither have I. Community is fun. I'm not a big sitcom person, but Community is the one sitcom I could enjoy. I have. Community is awesome. I enjoyed both of them. I particularly liked the ending quote at the end of the second episode where Abed is like, it's like, no, I'm, I am a dungeon master. I create a world and I bind it by rules. Right. And which plays into the whole thing of uh, community being entirely in Abed's imagination. Like that's one of the fan theories that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> and he basically goes, it's, it's like, if, if you show up at someone's castle, have a two hour fight about who's going to kill him at the front door. He goes out the back yep. door. Uh, could you please redo your episode on video games? It was kind of short. You know, at some point I'd like to focus a little more on video games, but I think we've kind of evolved as a podcast. We were originally going to kind of do a lot with video games and turns out tabletop gaming is full of all sorts of stuff that is applicable to video games from a storytelling perspective. At some point, I'm sure we're going to talk about video games more. I mean, it's what we do. And I'd like to bring some video game people on at some point, but I don't know. Well, and we do use them as examples from time to time. We've, oh, sure. We've all quoted Mass Effect and Dragon Age and Dungeons of Treadmore. And yeah. uh, and lastly, do any of you have a personal theme song you like whistling, whistling to yourself? Uh, no, I tend to have kind of this constant radio station in my head of constantly changing music Uh, i'm never without some song in my head but it changes almost hourly my earworms don't last long but they're constantly there um like today i've had one of the chrono trigger themes in my head all day Uh, it's it's based on the false assumption that i can whistle which i cannot my daughter by the way asks me to stop singing she's two (laughs) Apparently, I can't sing. <laughs> or or as a two-year-old, she doesn't have musical taste yet. Oh, no. She's fine with mommy singing, but daddy cannot sing. Daddy, stop. Stop. As I've said, these are playing constantly, usually on podcasts. So uh, I usually drown out anything else in my head because I'm, I'm usually have this. Otherwise, it's the blur of the podcast train. Now. Yeah, obviously, that's just stuck in your head all day. All right. And that's actually all of our questions. I do want to thank everybody who has tuned in to listen and watch us live. You guys are awesome. And thank you so much. And I'm, I'm really excited that we got to really interact with some of you guys and, and do some of this live. That was, yeah, this was, this was good. Uh, we'll have to do this again. Oh yes. Oh yeah. We'll see. I don't know that this is going to be an every episode thing, but we definitely need to do more of it. Mm-hmm. Who knows? We'll figure it out. Does anybody have anything else? No, I think I'm good. Yes. All right. I've been waiting to do this. 
for a long time because Peter and Grant, oh, I think no, definitely Grant, you said we'd do this, but I am looking for people who possibly make drawings to make a couple characters for us. Particularly, there are a couple inside jokes going around the podcast about the nature of several hosts, uh, such as... Oh <laughs> Here we go. All right, so I'm sure you've heard by now. Well, thanks for tuning in, and... Uh, We're going to forcibly close the audio now and run screaming into the night. No, go ahead, right. Brandon. Uh, but go yes, as, as I made jokes... You're only editing to your editing. <laughs> it's okay. Editing. Did I just say editing? editing? It's too late. I need more it's espresso. Like editing, but backwards. Uh, put quick, in the mistake. Quick thing for those of you on YouTube. When we started, this pot of espresso was full. <laughs> just saying. But anyway, as I said, um, uh, I've come up with a couple of interesting characters for us. The first is Robo Grant because of Grant's new computer and the fact that we were joking about putting him into a robot. Then there is, of course, Peter the Paladin because, as we all know, Peter only plays with uh, good characters and good groups and things like that. And I am Evil Overlord Brandon. So... Uh, I challenge anyone out there with any artistic ability whatsoever to draw one or all three of those people, along with possibly Blurry the Podcast Train. Not necessarily all together, but hopefully in separate pictures. But if you want to do one all together, I suppose that'd be good, too. If nothing else, we can do that as like a thing for our Facebook oh, yes. page, right? Like the yeah. banner or something. That would actually be a lot of fun. Uh, but I, I really would like to see that because I, I want to see what your guys going to do. Oh, and since I haven't had my webcam going um, tonight, if you want some idea of what I look like to render me, look at my Facebook stuff. I've got an actual picture of myself in there. Or, you know, contact him, ask him for a selfie, something Ooh. like that. You know, send him a headshot, um, that sort of thing, right? Headshot, acting resume, they'll call you. They'll call yeah, you. Yeah, like, like I have any of that. Jack is saying that he has some contacts for artwork. Awesome. Awesome. Well, so do yes. we. I mean, I was also putting it out there to the know. community. But yeah, if anybody <laughs> wants to do this, that would be fun. Um, and if you are okay with it, whoever ends up drawing things, I can't promise anything, obviously. But hey, who knows? Maybe a t-shirt. Hey, look, if the ones that I like, I will use as profile pictures on things. Because, like, I think it'd be absolutely hilarious to have evil overlord Brandon as... <laughs> Uh, pictures. Basically, we are begging professional artists for free artwork because, hey. <laughs> because that's the thing that podcasters have done for ages and why should it stop now? <clears throat> yeah, it's it's not like this is a for-profit operation, alright? <laughs> this is very... It's, yeah. <laughs> it's the... It is the worst for-profit thing ever if it's for-profit. I know. Well, what's funny is um, I had my parents over last weekend and they actually asked me because I was telling them, hey, I'm going to be doing this live episode. It's going to be fun. They asked me, well, now how much money do you make from podcasting? I just looked at him. It's like, all right, negative. The, the, the number has a minus in front of it. <laughs> negative lots. This is a hobby. All right. This is not yeah. a business. <clears throat> uh, good times. Besides, it's a niche of a niche, right? Of a I niche mean, of a niche, I think. <laughs> yeah, come on. You, you've got you've got role players, and then you've got ones that listen to podcasts, and then you have ones that are also interested in listening to a role-playing podcast that's specifically about Christianity and its interaction with games. That's a niche of a niche of a niche. Yeah, yeah not all of our listeners are Christian, and I don't no. know that all of our listeners are tabletop gamers, although I suspect they are, but... 
it's still a pretty small yeah, I audience. mean, they're, they're at least anyway. interested in listening to us, which is we're quite the subset, is kind of what I was trying to say. <laughs> That's right, because each and every one of you is yes. awesome. Yeah, we, we actually do have really cool listeners. Every indication I've ever gotten has just reinforced that more and more. Oh, I know. They're great people. Uh, and speaking of, if you want to interact with those listeners, on our website, savingthegamepodcast.org, there is a link to our uh, listener community, our which is a Google Plus community. You can just uh, join the community. It's open to everybody. Hop on in, introduce yourself, and uh, start talking, because there's a lot of good conversation that happens there. And I think that's where I should call it. Alrighty. Yep. Cool. Well, from all of us here at Saving the Game, thanks for listening. Have a good night. And I can actually say have a good night, because you know when we recorded. <laughs> and you're watching it right now, some of you, and more of you will watch the YouTube video. Hooray. From all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good night. Thanks for listening. God bless. Take care, everybody. See ya. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.